say, Colin? <laughs> you know, for me, you're in the future. Like, uh, like a man on the moon or in a tin pan. Welcome to the Eat Radio Podcast. And here's your host, Colin Pope from Eat Magazine. Welcome back to the Eat Magazine podcast, and I'm back in my favorite bar again. Uh, fantastic to be here. This is part two of our Peg Leg podcast. I'm going to be talking to Colin. He is about to join us, and uh, and we've got some exciting news for you as well at the end of the show. So uh, with that, welcome to Peg Leg, part two of uh, one of my favorite bars in Sydney, and we'll jump straight into it. Hi, it's Cullen here from Eat Magazine. I'm here in Sydney. I'm very, very lucky to be in an amazing little bar which I've stumbled across. I've uh, basically met Colin Perello, is that right? Colin Perello. Colin yep. Perello. That's good. Thanks, Colin, for joining us. Now, can I just ask you, how did you come up with this nautical-inspired space? I mean, to me, it's... It's not tiki, it's much more than that. I felt like I was stepping on board a ship. I felt like I was arriving somewhere. I felt like I was walking into another reality. Do you want to tell us about it? Wow, well, that's a brilliant description, Callum, because you put into more eloquent words what we set to achieve. Um, happy that you used the word tiki there because Manuel and I do come from a tiki bartending background. Really? Um, which we're both quite passionate about. But with Pegleg, we chose to do something a little bit different. Whereas Tiki was mostly inspired by the post-war experience of mostly Americans who were in the South Pacific, who brought back a little bit of South Pacific Polynesian culture and then Americanized the hell out of it by, you know, making it fluorescent colors and, and, um, and templated all over California and Hawaii. What we chose to do with this building when we found out what it was and what it, what its historical value was to Australian booze culture, what we decided to do was come up with our own version of tiki, which we affectionately call Oz Tiki. Oz Tiki, right. Okay. So that's fundamentally how Pegleg begins. Um, when Manuel and I got the lease for this building, we found out that it was the oldest pub in Piermont. A uh, 159-year-old pub in a country that's a little over 200 years old with Europeans building buildings and stuff over here. Um, so when we started looking at that, we did a little bit of math and we figured out Captain Cook had arrived on this island 80 years before this building. And the first fleets had started arriving to this island 50 years before this building was constructed. And then we started looking into little bit of Australian history we knew from there and started thinking about okay so what do we know about Piermont well what was Piermont in the earliest days this peninsula surprisingly was the quarry where the convicts that we all learned about in our history books were sent to cut rocks to build the suburb in the CBD of Sydney which is famously called the rocks well those rocks came from the sandstone that's just below us and one of the longest roads, probably the first road longer than two miles built on this island by Europeans would have been 
the road going from the rocks to the quarry. Right, and that would be to carry the stone, obviously, to build the rocks from here. Exactly. And so when we, when we found that out, that was the little starting point of this suburb and where it comes from. And we started thinking to ourselves, so what would this pub have been like when, when it was brand new? And we looked around and we said, well, it's a very British looking pub. To my eyes and Manuel's eyes, both of us having lived in London and trained in London for the better part of a decade. And then moved to Australia to try our hand at opening bars here. So we looked at this beautiful old English pub as we recognized it and went, well, this place sure looks like it was built by a bunch of Englishmen and Irishmen who probably just arrived here from over there and built what they were familiar with back home. Well, we love English pubs and Irish pubs. So we decided to roll with that. But instead of making an English or an Irish pub, which is a little bit contrived, in my opinion, um, we decided to do something unapologetically Australian. Because as foreigners living in London, but loving all that cool British stuff that they have in London, fish and chips, meat pies, you know, Sunday roasts, all that kind of stuff, both of us having arrived in Australia, found that Aussies feel those things to be very heritage Australian foods and dishes and part of our culture here as well. But just quietly between you and me, because we have better ingredients and a lot of other good things going for us in this country, I found that we do a lot of those things a heck of a lot better here in Australia than we do than we did in the UK. So Manuel and I decided to take all of that completely on board and do all of these heritage-focused foods, meat pies, Sunday roasts, fish and chips, fresh oysters, and then keep going further and further down the pathway of what makes Australia unique and awesome. Well, we have some of the best seafood in the world in this country. Oh, and just a stone's throw down a hill from our location here in Piermont is one of the great seafood markets in the world and one of the best ones in our continent, the Sydney Seafood Market. And is it true you get your seafood delivered fresh only a few meters away down there at the market delivered here, is that right? Most, okay. Mostly true. Yeah. If, if we change delivered if we include in the delivery process the fact that our head chef does the carrying of the delivery so our head chef whose name's Jono who's an absolute legend um, walks down that hill at the beginning of his shift um, and picks out what fish he wants and what oysters he's going to be serving that day so everything is virtually as fresh as it could be lest we fished it ourselves and I don't like waking up early in the morning so I'm not fishing <laughs> um, but on the other hand, John does a great job picking out amazing produce. And one of the things we decided to do is focus on things that we in this city have that it makes it a great place. You know, not everybody in the world is lucky enough to have amazing seafood dropped off within a walking distance in the middle of a major city where we can also have great chefs like John cook it up for us. You know, um, Manuel and I were very inspired by, um, some Cornish friends, uh, friends from Cornwall in Britain who took a lot of pride in their British heritage food and a lot of their connection to the food was the fact that they often knew the fishermen who caught the fish in their local pub and a local brewer would be making the real ale that they would both be drinking and battering their fish and chips with. And so what we started thinking about was the finest quality of those foods are often it often comes down to the quality of the ingredients. And we have access to the best 
ingredients in the world here. So if we use them and we get the temperatures right and we work with really passionate and competent chefs who can get all those kind of details right, we can't produce bad food. We have to get some of the best quality versions of these dishes that we all love coming out of our bar and our restaurant. And I noticed that there's a very Australian feel to even, I don't know if I would call it the beer menu, but I guess there is, yeah. it does feel like there's a beer menu here, of really good Australian beers as well. And very sort of, you've got a, you do have a good selection of Australian wines as well, doesn't it? It's a great observation. Yeah. Um, yeah, we try to focus on showing off what is great that we make on in this country. Uh, and we also have a lot of love for New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, so let's we, talk about that New Zealand love, because I think I've got some in my hand right now. Yep. And, and this is this extraordinary rum. Yeah. So when we first met, and you happened to notice that we have a very strong rum showing, yep. that's for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is that as you may know, the first currency in this country was actually rum. Uh, there's a little bit, bit of fun history connected with Piermont. The peninsula of Piermont, at one point in early Australian history, before we adopted the pound, um, the peninsula itself was purchased for a gallon of rum, right. as, the, as the story goes. Uh, there's actually a pub down the street called Gallon in honor of that story. Um, and we joke every time we... Uh, pay a bill with yeah. someone that we accept both of Australia's currencies, the Australian dollar we do, and rum. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I know that you also do, you've got some great cocktails here, and I guess my sense is, you know, when, when even before I walked in here, just, I guess, the whole entrance way, just sort of peering through the window, you know, I can see... I can see, you know, there's the old ship's ropes with sort of hats and things hanging and there's a real, there's a real sense that I feel like I'm much closer to the ocean here than I am when I'm down on the shore. Wow. So that must have taken you a bit of time. Well, thanks very much uh, for noticing that. Uh, when we looked at the history of this neighborhood and, and the building itself, we found out that Darling Harbour was effectively what Ellis Island is to Americans, but for European immigrants who came to Australia, specifically New South Wales. Okay. Do you want to explain briefly for some of our listeners who might not know what Ellis Island is? Gladly. Gladly. So Ellis Island is the island in New York, near Manhattan, where most European immigrants for a period of early European immigration to North America would have come via Ellis Island because that's where immigration was controlled. That's right, that's where they were processed. Exactly. And here in Darling Harbour, we have something called the Welcome Wall, because that's, which is just immediately next to the National Maritime Museum. And this is in commemoration of the fact that that was our immigration point for Europeans coming to New South Wales. So when Manuel and I realized this, both of us, Manuel the Mexican and Colin the Canadian, uh, don't worry, the irony isn't lost on us that we've taken up all this uh, Australian history and, and culture that precedes our arrival, but it's, it's fascinating and it's cool. Um, so we, we wanted to learn everything we could, and then as we came up with this fun new idea, which is Oztiki, we, we kept going and going and going with it because it's actually quite relevant to this neighborhood and the building. Um, so the Ellis Island of Australia... 
the immigration port, which is Darling Harbor for well over 100 years, uh, is literally 100 meters from here. This being the oldest pub in Piermont, what we came to realize is that many of the very first European immigrants to this island might have gotten off that boat, signed their papers, and then thought to themselves, I've just been on a boat for three months at sea. I could do with a beer. And we would have been the nearest pub to that port. Now, there are pubs older than us on this in, in the rocks, but the rocks is two miles hike up a hill. Now, just trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody who just got off a boat three months at sea, I'd be looking for the nearest pub with the coldest beer. So part of the fun of this concept that we came up with is that a lot of our friends whose ancestors have been here longer, more generations than ours, uh, their ancestors might have had their first beer on this island in our bar. And for us, that's quite a unique part of Australian culture and booze history. And we wanted to make that into a good thing. We don't want to, uh, you know, I, I don't see alcohol and drinking culture in this country as being a demon to be avoided. I think that it's actually how we socialize, how we get to know each other, how we party, how we celebrate, um, how we date, how we court, how we do a lot of the best things that lead to other great things in our lives. And so our goal is to create an environment where people can do that and enjoy it. And it's it's a positive thing. Brilliant. It certainly feels that, and I guess for me, uh, you know, coming back uh, to Sydney now, I've always strongly felt, I don't know how to describe it, I've always strongly felt a real sense of history here, in a really deep way, in a way even more so than in all the parts of Europe that I've been to. Yeah, I just feel like... I don't know, it's hard to explain, but it's almost yeah. as if in a way, I think in these particular, these particular parts of Sydney, you really get that, you feel that history in terms of that 40,000 years of history, maybe millions of years of history, mm -hmm. and then you, you get that sense of this early colonial stuff, which kind of almost feels like it could be new in terms of the landscape. Do you get a sense of that at all? Do you Absolutely. Do you that connection with the land? Well, as, as a Canadian, I've come from a country that shares a lot of similarities with Australia in terms of our colonial history. And I also am quite fond of architecture. Now this city, in my opinion, is second to very, very few in terms of the quality, the diversity, and also the, the really cool, for lack of a better word, just the uniqueness and the coolness of the architecture. And part of what stands out to me is that the weather is so darn good here over the couple hundreds of years that some of these building, buildings have been standing they haven't been destroyed by mother nature where i grow up where i grew up there's a 70 degree span of temperature minus 35 in the winter plus 35 in the summer that doesn't do very good things to victorian construction buildings on the other hand in sydney where the span of temperature is about 15 degrees um a lot of these buildings are as beautiful as they were when they were built 100 years ago. Um, and for good reason, a lot of them haven't been torn down because a lot of them are still great. So we do have a lot of nice opportunities to walk in the footsteps of, of our ancestors or, or of people who who were rocking around doing interesting things before us. Yeah, that's right. And I think there's very... 
I guess there are there's some cities that you can get that sense in, but I think Sydney still very strongly has that sense, and it's a hard thing to convey to people in a way, isn't it? Yeah. Until they actually get here and they go, aha, they get that moment. <coughs> Indeed. Which is also part of why Manuel and I wanted to do an Oz Tiki cocktail bar pub restaurant. Right. Um, the term gastropub yeah. will probably ring a bell yeah. if you've spent any time in the UK. Yeah. Um, and this is something that I've found that Melbourne does very, very well. And Melbourne's recognized as far away as London as being a world leader in terms of its small bar and hospitality culture. Part of the reason that I chose to move to Sydney was because it was not. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, what Manuel and I found working and living in London is that a lot of our best friends, a lot of our favorite guests, and a lot of our favorite colleagues were all Australians. So when we were deciding where we would like to start opening bars and restaurants, we thought, well, why don't we just go where there's loads more of those folks? Because they're, they're brilliant to be around. Let's just, we'll serve them, we'll work with them, and we'll employ them, and we'll, it'll, it'll be great. Oh yeah, by the way, there's a beach and we can go surfing, right? Um, so, so the Mexican and the Canadian, you know, didn't argue for longer than 30 seconds about this idea. Let's just move to Bondi and open a bunch of bars. Um, but there's there's a lot of really wonderful things going for us here. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, I guess, uh, wrapping up, because I know Manuel has uh, just walked through the door and he's going to uh, hopefully spend a couple of minutes with us with the bar is filling up. But mm -hmm. uh, do you want to just tell us, for those listeners of ours that haven't been to Sydney yet, that are on their way, um, what's a place that you would recommend quietly over the bathroom to go or, or something that you think people should see when they come to Sydney that might a little bit up the big track that they might miss out what's your recommendations? Sydney's a great place for food tourism um, where Melbourne is recognised as a major world leader in the small bars and uh, cocktail bars uh, culture there is a lot of amazing restaurants here so there's a lot of things to do large cultural diversity. Um, one thing that stood out to me as I moved here was noticing how powerful Asian fusion is here. Um, there's a lot of, you know, homegrown Australians who are massively inspired by our nearest neighbors who've gone there to study their culinary traditions as well as their ingredients, and they love to make good use of them. Um, you've also mentioned the seafood market, yeah. which gives us access to some of the best seafood in the world, which is also uniquely ours. Um, one thing I've found with a lot of Chinese tourists who come here is they'll come specifically as food tourists because they, they love eating food and they love trying new things and often they'll have heard about or read about or heard from friends who've visited Australia how much amazing Sea seafood we have to try yeah. and they'll come here and go straight to the seafood markets right. okay. um, that's a nice thing to do yeah. it's quite right. uniquely Sydney okay. in my opinion yeah. not to say that we're the only place you can do that but we're sure a good place you can do that okay fantastic alright yeah. that's awesome alright well look um, just uh, I guess finishing off is there one particular drink here that you'd like to recommend people try when they, when they swing by well, I'm a big fan of the rum, and I'm also a big fan of the gin. Uh, at Pegleg, we've... Indeed. So, with with our nautical concepts and uh, our nod to British-Australian history, 
we chose to focus on gin for the officers and rum for the crew, right, okay. as it were. Yep. Um, but and, and as we progressed this idea forwards, we kept thinking, well, what do we make here that stands out? Right, okay. And a lot of what we hoped to focus on was Australian-made gins and Australian-made rums, right. specifically rums that aren't Bundaberg. Yeah, okay. um, believe it or not, there's a lot of really good rums being made in this country, right. you know, with the probably 20% of the thing covered in sugarcane, we should be making great rum. Uh, Indonesia being the historical origin of sugarcane, um, we should be a world leader in rum, in my opinion. And in the last few years that I've been here, I've watched lots of small producers start making world-class rum. Now, with this location in the middle of Australia's biggest city, we want to be showing that off. We want Aussies to know how good our rum is and also how good our gin is. So I love showing people Stone and Pine gin from Bathurst or 40 Spotted from Hobart or, you know, there's so many fantastic new products being released to the market that we want to put in people's mouths because what's the point of having all this good stuff if we aren't drinking it and we don't even know, you know? So we take it as a little bit of our own responsibility as professionals in the industry to introduce people to what we make in this country, which is great. Gin and rum are two amazing examples where we're, it's, I'm, I'm not uh, exaggerating to say that in the last five years, we produced several brands of gin that are in the top tier in the world. We've also produced whiskeys that are winning world championships in single malt categories over over uh, hundreds of years established Scottish distilleries and very, very proud, well-established distilleries in Japan as well. Our, some of our distilleries that are only 30 years old, 20 years old, 10 years old in some cases are beating some of the most established uh, spirit products in the world. And that's right. In Tasmania, producing world class uh, whiskey, that's one, one of the best whiskeys, or the best whiskey yeah. uh, in the world. Sullivan's Coke, French cask. That's right, yeah. Yeah, and, and a fantastic distillery worth visiting as well. Yeah. They also make 40 spotted gin, which is world class oh, okay. at that same distillery. And I know there's some great gin coming out of Sydney as well, isn't there? Yes, yeah. we have Archie Rose here in Sydney. Right, okay. And just a couple. 100 kilometers east of here, we make one called, um, well, we don't make it, somebody else makes it, but it's bloody good. I sell a lot of it. Um, it's called Stoughton Pine. That one's made in Bathurst. Okay, all right, brilliant. Okay, very good. You've got some world-class ones in Victoria, yes. Four Pillars. Yes. They make a Navy Strength as well, which is exceptional. Yeah, so when we talk about Navy Strength, uh, what are we talking about? I've got an idea of what I think that is. That's a great question. So... You may have heard the terms proof or overproof. Um, Overproof is obviously more used because proof was kind of just a technical term. But what they actually mean is in the good old days where there was rum rations and gin rations for the officers on a ship, they would be stored in the hull of the ship, in the bottom of the ship, the same place as the gunpowder would be stored. Now, there is a very obvious technical problem with having a load of liquids that people needed to drink to survive many months at sea immediately next to the dry substance that was required for shooting off cannonballs against pirates and French and Spanish and Dutch ships. Uh, At the same time, they would be stored in the same place 
but in the high seas, sometimes something would break or maybe they would get hit in a battle and they needed their gunpowder to still ignite. So proof meant that you could pour the liquid on the gunpowder and it would still light fire. And overproof meant that it was high enough alcohol percentage that it would explode. Meaning that the rum and the gin that was brought onto ships in the Navy had to be of a high enough alcohol by volume not to interfere with gunpowder explosion, which was 49% alcohol. It's by the by. So overproof by and large is 49 or 50% alcohol. And that means that it's above that um, percentage of alcohol. In modern practice, it's not about just getting drunker because getting an extra 10% alcohol in your shot is not going to really make a world of difference to your life except for from the perspective of the cocktail bartender those flavors show through much better after dilution so when we're making cocktails we'll shake it with ice we'll stir it with ice and we'll add liquid syrups or fruit juices to the process if you have a higher alcohol by volume spirit you taste that spirit much more after all the processes of the cocktail making are done. That's the value of having overproof. It's also pretty cool from the perspective of, you know, trying new products, making new products, and making new cocktails. Because from our perspective, it's great because you can taste the spirits. All right, brilliant. Now, I know that uh, you're about to go back to the bar. I can see people uh, coming in, obviously a lot of locals here. and uh, I just wanted to uh, ask you, I've, I've managed to taste the rum and um, before I go and eat, I, I thought I might try something else. What do you think I should try? For people coming to Peg Lake for the first time, I like to recommend staple foods, um, locals' favorites, you know? So when I say that we took on board doing Australian British classic foods. I look at things like fish and chips, calamari, um, or salt and pepper squid, things like this, um, which show off classics, but in our opinion, done to the best possible, using the best ingredients, the best temperatures, doing things as they would be done in Cornwall or by a grandmother who was really passionate making her his uh, historical foods for her family you know um, that's the focus that we took so for example um, with our chips we use the same processes that they use in Cornwall and that they have done for over a hundred years that created this style that is now world famous of fish and chips you know so living in London for a long time you find that fish and chips is usually soggy and not very impressive dish the reason is is that over time they've moved away from using lard in the deep frying process and start using vegetable oil vegetable oil is the same thing as McDonald's and Hungry Jack's use has that specific smell it's also carcinogenic and it's also soggy vegetables don't absorb vegetable oil very well so that the, the dishes remain soggy whereas we focused on using more natural ingredients healthier ingredients um, in that case, we use lard because it dries out the chips, it dries out the fish, and what you end up with is a perfectly crisp, dry, fresh dish after deep frying. 
which we've learned from looking at historical styles of cooking historical dishes. So a lot of what we try to do is make the sorts of things that have been around here for a long time to the best of our possible ability. But we take that quite seriously. Uh, we don't want to make dishes for people who've grown up on these dishes and do an average job of them. You know, If you grew up having salt and pepper squid, I want the, our target is for you to come in and be impressed by the quality of our salt and pepper squid, you know? All right, well, listen, thank you very much for joining us. And I guess we're going to uh, be able to grab Manuel now for a couple of minutes. Is that right? I'll go get him for you. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Thank Cheers. you. Thanks for joining us and Colin for that fantastic afternoon, that interview, a real insight into, I guess, the sort of inside story, this particular part of Sydney, very rich in history. And uh, look, we didn't really get time to do a deep dive into the menu here, but it's certainly you can get some great aperitifs. Uh, there's sort of fire and smoke and uh, there's a few refreshing things, there's a bit of tropical spice when you look, look at some of the drinks there and certainly the food's fantastic and uh, great uh, fresh seafood as well uh, when that's on the menu of the day. So just wanted to say uh, thanks for joining us there. You can get their details linked straight through to their Facebook if you want more details on where to find them and their menu. We'll put all of that link in there, all of the links and um so great if you haven't listened to part two please go back uh we've uh we've had uh, manuel and we've had uh, colin here uh really both of those interviews really sharing with you uh i guess that sort of seaside heart of sydney and uh, look a special announcement is a real massive upgrade to our website if you want to check it out at eatmag.com e-a-t-t-m-a-g.com and of course we are on social media on instagram and pinterest among other places so we look forward to you joining us there and uh, if you need to contact me if you want some tips on sydney you can do that uh, by emailing me cullen c-u-l-l-e-n at e-a-t-t-m-a-g.com and we'll catch you on the next show we're we're not going very far but uh, i think i think you'll find it very interesting certainly making me hungry thinking about it anyway we'll catch you soon cheers mm-hmm.